Hello and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our much appreciated radio syndicate partners across this land or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I am David Hostetter. We are in studio with Stefan Hostetter as well as Saren Kaster, as always, and also special guest Emma McIntosh of the National Observer. And we will be joined by Fatima Syed of The Logic. Uh, at some point later, and calling Lauren Latour for the second segment. So many, so many guests. Yes, and a bleary-eyed Stefan Hostetter is ready to entertain them all. I'm, I'm so ready. Let's do this. So we're going to talk about the throne speech to start the liberals, uh, lo- the new minority liberal government's agenda or plan for the coming years. Then uh, Ottawa's look at uh, Alberta's carbon pricing plan. Some stuff Doug Ford has done in Ontario. Uh, the Green New Deal, and corporate polluters. So here we go. The Governor General, Julie Payette, delivered the obligatory speech from the throne on December 5th, in which she outlined the agenda of the minority liberal government, vowing to act on climate change while selling more oil. They also promised to give more support to First Nations, but failed to mention our ongoing genocide. In the form of missing and murdered indigenous women, the staggering number of indigenous children in foster care, the continued theft and poisoning of land, lack of clean drinking water, at least one case of forced sterilization, etc., etc. By not explicitly acknowledging this, the government's promise to walk the road of reconciliation and keep Canadians safe and healthy seems empty and calculated to pass over our collectively perpetrated horrors with a shy grimace. Payette also said in the speech, quote, We are inextricably bound to the same space-time continuum and on board the same planetary spaceship. So at least there's a factual basis for politics going forward. But as James W.C. White of the University of Colorado points out, we are now the drivers of that spaceship and therefore carry a profound responsibility. Thus we turn to an article by Carl Mayer in the National Observer, in which he examines our government's intention to, quote, attempt to move forward on their campaign promises of setting a target of net zero carbon pollution by 2050, planting two billion trees and protecting a quarter of Canada's oceans and land. Mayor points out that no specifics were given on future carbon pricing or emissions reductions, but quotes Payette as saying in the throne speech, quote, Canada's children and grandchildren will judge this generation by its action, or inaction, on the defining challenge of the time, climate change. From forest fires and floods to ocean pollution and coastal erosion, Canadians are living the impact of climate change every day. The science is clear, and it has been for decades. Mayor also quotes Keith Stewart of Greenpeace and Marin Smith of Clean Energy Canada, who pointed out that continuing to invest in fossil fuels is not the only way to help struggling fossil fuel workers. A more sound approach in the long term would rather be to invest wholeheartedly in helping those workers transition through the, to the renewable energy sector, which is growing faster than anybody anticipated. Despite the promise to grow the oil and gas sector, however, the Conservatives are still saying that the speech is an insult to Alberta and Saskatchewan, with leader Andrew Scheer, who has now stepped down, saying that the government needs to recognize the anger and resentment in those provinces but agreed that investing in green tech was a good idea. At a time when we need to be sharply reducing emissions, meanwhile, 
Canada remains on track to miss its 2030 target by 15%. And that's the 2030 target, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that was, that was set by, by Harper, right? Uh, that, that was the one that was from, like, that, that, that Trudeau never actually changed. And so it's like, this is not even a, this is not a, this is not an ambitious 2030 target. And, and that 2030 target is not in line with our Paris record. It's like, it's, mm. it's, 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 it's lack of ambition all the way down. You know, it's, it's like we set a target that is not good enough to set the other target we set. And we're missing both of those targets. Mm. It's, it's just a, it's a cascading downwards. But, but Emma, you're to you. Oh, I, uh, I'm, I'm with you there, bud. Um, <laughs> I think, I think I would have liked to see something, anything that talked to um, to ending fossil fuel subsidies, because at, at some point we are probably going to have to do that. Um, there was like a, a, you know, like a little throw to like maybe supporting like the energy sector by, um, we saw this actually expanded upon in the mandate letters released to all the ministers today by, by twinning the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So it's kind of unclear how we are going to meaningfully get to net zero by 2050. Just saying it is enough. You know, and, and, and net zero is such a funny. Like, a, I'm wondering how much of this in their mind is 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 connected to things like planting all these trees, right? Like the the, the move the Canadian government has always done to avoid any real responsibilities. Like, but we have so much green space. We're net zero already. Like that's like basically what their argument was in the last like 16 cops. <laughs> um, and and so there's, yeah, and, and so like like the question of, you know, you building an infrastructure pipeline. A pipeline infrastructure that would be only really a sound investment if it exists for what the next forty years. That's approximately how long that the, the pipeline's supposed to work. Which means that you've, you're at what twenty twenty the five years by the time you're at net zero, and then you still have twenty years of pipeline usage after your net zero. What are you doing during that time? What is what is happening? And, yeah, and, unless, of course, you're just not considering, um, you know, the the emissions A that exists outside of it, or B that you've given yourself some other reason why you are are trying to do something, right? It doesn't it doesn't 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 line up. Uh, but we've been joined by by Fatima. Uh, welcome, A. Hello. <laughs> um, and, and and yeah, your thoughts. Sorry. Um, I. I, again, skimmed the mandate letters that mm. came out this morning, and, and the one encouraging thing to take away from this morning is that there seems to be a ministry-wide commitment to to sort of shifting towards the low-carbon economy. So it's not just environment and climate change or natural resources that has this in their mandate letters, but it's across the board, which is really interesting to see. Um, and, and one could argue that that shows the level of commitment that the federal government is, is bringing to this. Um, and, and to the point of the 2030 targets, I feel like we need to move past this point, Stefan. <laughs> and, and I only say this because the entire world has created this target point and right. they're trying to achieve it. And, you know, uh, whether it, it, we know it's not enough, we know it needs to be higher, but it's a baseline. And we hope that countries will get their act together and, and sort of shift it forward um, and, and, and do more than, than required of them by this target. Um, at the same time, it is encouraging to see that, you know, Canadians elected um, a government um, in, in an election where climate change was very much a big issue. And after the throne speech, the Bloc Quebecois leader um, said that he would, you know, support the government's push towards any sort of climate initiative if there happened to be a vote of confidence. 
I think you're seeing that shift, and I think they're just sort of starting to see their legs. And, you know, we've read so much on climate change, and we know there's no magic bullet, and it doesn't happen in a day, and and Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, So I think, you know, moving forward, it'll be interesting to see how they carry out all the things that they're promising and, and how much momentum and fire they, they put under it. Yeah, it, it will, I will say it was encouraging, um, at the very least, th- that you get a, that after the, that their first, you know, their the first thing they said out of the gate was that we're going to lower taxes. And I was like, what are we doing here? And, and there does at least seem to be some switch back because it seemed to me very obvious that, again, climate change was the central part of the election and this question about what, we all, what else we were going to do. Um, and with with now this minority government, you know, you, they did have two different parties that ran on even more ambitious climate targets that they could use to to push things forward. So it sort of felt like a good opportunity, and so it's a nice to have a little bit of wind back in those sails, despite the you know the, the tax cut they are actually doing, which mostly benefits people making ninety five thousand dollars a year, which I guess explains what quote unquote the middle class prosperity means. Uh, but let's not get into that. Uh, uh, before uh, before we move on to the other thought, uh, any thoughts? Uh, any other last thoughts? Uh, Emma. Well, I am. Um, I'm gonna like natter on about this forever, but <laughs> I really feel like. Um, I mean, we, I guess it's unrealistic to ask for all of this to be in the throne speech because we'd all be rolling our eyes and bored by that point if we weren't already. It's like four days long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we've got to see a meaningful commitment to energy transition. Like there are real workers with real families who are gonna have to do something. Otherwise, the economy will really suffer, and that's not realistic. Um, we've got to move towards clean energy jobs. And I really want to see how the government approaches this in the months that, that follow, because I think that's going to be really crucial. Fatima? Yeah, I agree. I think um, right now all the promises are very broad. I would like to know more about what it actually looks like on the ground. You know, there's a lot of talk about retrofits in the mandate letter, a lot of talks about, you know, transitioning workers in towards a low carbon economy. Those are all great sounding words mm-hmm. for, for anyone interested in this topic, which is basically everyone, right? Um, but again, I want to know the nitty gritty details. How are you going to do it? How fast are you going to do it? What does it look like? How disruptive is it going to be? And is it going to be disruptive in a good way? Um, and, and and how many years is it going to take? Like, if, if, if they're promising it today, what's the timeline on all of this? What's the timeline on the two billion trees? What's the timeline on the low carbon economy? Um, you know, if they're if they're going to deliver, they're going to have to act fast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. see some short term goals here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Let's like, Where's the to do list? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and let's have a twenty twenty one goal instead of twenty thirty goals. Every goal can't be ten years away. Like, I agree. I think I think part of the problem with the climate discussion is we're we're so far into the future. We need to talk about tomorrow more than we do about ten years because if if we improve day by day, then that makes sense to me. Whereas if we're trying to attain a goal in 2030, which is 20, I can't do math, 10 years away, 10 yes. years away, um, <laughs> then that's very intangible, intangible and very far away. I want to know what we're doing tomorrow and yeah. the day after that and the day after that. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, the Transform Toronto uh, um, conversation, or they recently had a series of, of, of 
consultations, and they and they were only looking at the next five years. And it was interesting how that uh, framed sort of the – they're doing consultations with the public, and it's interesting how that framed the conversation with the public because then it was like, okay, you can't tell us to do something that takes us 10 years. Like we actually only want you to tell us things we could do in the next five years because that's what this consultation is actually focused on. Um, and it, it, it was, I think, was a helpful exercise. You know, I think you get you get a little closer, and, and you have some more immediate ideas. Like, yes, you also need to plan for future, but it's also useful to be like, what am I doing tomorrow? I think part of the onus is on us as well. You know, the people who are having these conversations with the public, whether it's reporters, whether it's broadcasters like yourself, whether it's public officials, we, we have to start talking in more near-term terms than, than far-away terms because, you know, a leader isn't elected forever. Right, yeah. Well, so, it, it, or, or a journalist isn't there forever. Our, our, our jobs are, are to f- inform the public about what's happening in the immediate tomorrow as opposed to 10 years from now. We don't know what our lives are going to be like in 10 years from now. I don't know where I'm going to be. Do you know where you're going to be? <laughs> Probably choked by wildfire smoke running in a flood at the same time. I don't know. All the same day. <laughs> one, one hellscape. Um, uh, sorry, sorry, jumps in for half a second. Yeah, just really quickly, um, like as a meta topic when we're talking about these topics, uh, something I like to think about is like, you know, often, quote, I'm going to use my scare quotes here again, like the left, that feels like we have a laundry list of things demand. That was sort of what uh, Emma was just sort of alluding to. It's like, a, it's like if we all the things we really want is very long, but it doesn't have to be, um, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, all the things that quote unquote we want are all science based. They're all based on facts. It's not a bunch of personal opinions that we're trying to like, hey, I prefer red. So let's have all city buses be red. No, this is science. So we can actually it doesn't have to be a long list. It can be one thing. We want science based policymaking. And when someone says something that's really insane about climate change, you'd be like, great, where's your evidence? And if we reduce the conversation to that as a culture, I think that helps because it, it isn't just an opinion or a, a preference of a, a side of the politics. It's not a preference for the color red. It's science. It's facts. Yeah. So let's uh, let's move on to the second show. In the same topic. Sorry. All right. So <clears throat> Robson Fletcher is reporting for the CBC that Ottawa has accepted Alberta's new carbon pricing scheme of thirty dollars a ton for big emitters. Their tier plan, which we outlined a few weeks a few weeks ago on this show, maintains the previous government's thirty dollar price, but reduces the effectiveness of the program on oil sands companies since facilities in question will each be held to their own individual standard, rather than evening the playing field across all of them. Thus, a facility only has to reduce its emissions relative to its own previous levels, rather than comply with with any industry-wide standard. The electricity sector does have an industry-wide standard under this plan, but not so for big emitters, which means that there will be far fewer emissions reductions overall, and oil sands companies will be able to save millions of dollars. The Federal Consumer Carbon Tax and Rebate Program uh, will still come into effect in Alberta on January 1st, in lieu of Alberta's own consumer plan. Uh, You can listen to our episode called Carbon Pricing and Renewable Electricity to hear our discussion of Andrew Leach's view on Alberta's plan. Yeah, that that actually was a quite, that was a, I thought that was a very useful article to sort of explain um, what this means. And and I also will say that my first understanding of uh, when I first read the headline, the the news was actually much less bad than the headline I I, I sort of presumed. Um, Because when I read the headline, I had presumed that he had accepted tier as the only 
uh, as a blanket acceptance, um, rather than sort of saying it can work for for the large emitters, but still the consumer pricing will still exist. Uh, so the fact that they maintain the consumer pricing, I think, is actually is 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 really important, um, mm-hmm. and 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 honestly addresses the major criticism that Leach had. One of the major criticisms Leach had of the actual plan. So the combination of these two creates what sounds like a, a very similar but not identical plan that was before they did everything. Like this tier plan had one or two ma- uh, uh, distinct differences uh, from the plan that that actually the Andrew Leach had helped uh, craft in, uh, with, with the Chinook government. And including this, inclu- com- the combination of these two plans is pretty similar. Uh, yeah, there's, the, there's the sort of the one question previously, but let's go to the panel. Well, I mean, look how far we've come. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking, it's, it's December 12, 2019. Exactly almost a year ago, we were in Ontario where, you know, the, the government led by Premier Doug Ford had canceled cap and trade. You know, months later, Alberta was like, yeah, we're going to challenge the carbon tax along with Ontario. There was so much drama. And now suddenly everyone's, everyone's lining up. Uh, under carbon pricing, New Brunswick got uh, had put one in place this week as well, along with Alberta. I think if there's a takeaway for me as a journalist, it's that I think the need for climate action has been put on the table so strongly that public officials can do nothing but respond to it. And I think at this point, they just have to. Like, there's no argument. There's no, you know, uh, back and forth on whether it's real or not real, whether we have to or we don't have to. It's simply of a matter, how do we do it? Is this the most effective way? And is this... And, and is this the least disruptive way? And I think carbon pricing sort of has fit that mandate for a lot of governments across the world, including in Canada. Um, and that's what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Emma? I fully agree. And I'm just going to uh, instead poke some holes in one of the PR lines that's often used around this. <laughs> <laughs> so when Jason Kenney unveiled this plan as part of the UCP platform, um, like in April or March, uh, one of the the ways that they sold it was that we're going to take the money from this and pour it into innovation. We are going to innovate our way out of the climate crisis because if like who, anyone can do it, Albertans can figure it out, you know. Um, and I think that plays into this like false promise that we're hearing a lot, which is that um, we can just like figure it out at some point mm, along right. the way by throwing money at it. It's the eat anything you want diet. Right, exactly. It's intuitive eating. Um, <laughs> although, for the record, that's very fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's my problem, I guess, is that um, simply saying that we're going to innovate, innovate our way out of it doesn't really solve the problem. And, I mean, honestly, you know better than me, Fatima, the state of, of clean tech in Canada is not where we would want it to be. It's um, definitely not moving as fast as we want it to anyway. Yeah, so, like... I, I'm glad to hear that the smart people like Andrew Leach are saying that this plan is, is not to be dismissed overall, um, that it's a, a serious piece of legislation. But I'm just going to keep yelling more, more, more <laughs> until someone does it. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like the – well, we've, as, as, we, as we've discussed on the this, on this show previously, and when you look at the actual numbers, the price for carbon that would actually get us there – is astronomical. It's 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 about two hundred dollars a ton right now, um, which which would be and that and that, and that would it was interesting about that is that to do that would would fundamentally change our economy right like the, to actually have a price that high on on carbon would 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 would, would, would 
would really f- you'd then at point see what the, what would happen like the market would actually start grinding to a halt and you'd start seeing people really start trying to figure th- some things out because um, at that point you, honestly sucking carbon to the air is almost commercially viable like 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 there's that that's about two hundred dollars a ton right now like that if you did that that's a r- thing we could do or just plant a billion trees and make a ton of money that way but I think baby steps right like I think if if part of the problem that isn't talked about a lot when it comes to the climate conversation is that there needs to be a major behavioral change. And how do you incentivize that? And carbon pricing seems to be the one method that, you know, experts agree that this could shift behavior in a way where people, individuals, the regular Joe or Mohammed or or whoever will, will be like, yes, I have to pay if I'm going to help, you know, decrease the effects of climate change in my life and other people's lives. Um, it, it forces you to sort of, you know, think about it, to pay for it, and, and so forth, and normalizes it. It's no longer like a burden. It's just, yeah, we have to do this if we're going to address the impacts of climate change. Um, I still think that the sort of, you know, we still need to figure out how effective it is in, in sort of shifting that behavioral change. For instance, I'd love to see a study a year or two years from now uh, about, you know, the psychological impacts of the carbon tax uh, where in the provinces that where it has been implemented and whether it has actually shifted people's behavior towards thinking a certain way about climate change. Um, but it's a step and it's a positive yeah. step. This is a weirdly positive climate conversation we're having yeah. today, weeks before 2019 ends. Yeah. It's great. I did not expect this with regard to Alberta, honestly. Yeah. I did not. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, so, so, so you sort of referenced there um, the, the fact that, you know, a year ago we were looking at sort of all of this pushback. Uh, and one of the major things, one of the major people doing that was Doug Ford. And that's the last segment of this, of this uh, segment. So, Doug Ford, Dave. So, yes, as our guest Emma McIntosh uh, reported for the the National Observer in November, our Ontario Premier Doug Ford has officially spent $230 million, uh, $231 million of taxpayer money in order to kill over 750 renewable energy projects in the province. After telling the public it wouldn't cost anything, the provincial government then tucked the expenditure away in an obscure file, sheepishly waiting for someone to finally dig it up. Uh, You mentioned specifically the White Pines project, which was partially constructed before it was cancelled, and you point out Peter Tabbins' comparison of this fiasco with the previous Liberals uh, who spent over $1 billion cancelling gas plants in Mississauga and Oakville. Uh, We will add to these uh, considerations. The Conservative government's recent cancellation of a nearly completed $200 million uh, wind farm in North Stormont, a township south of Ottawa. As Kelly Egan writes for the, of the Ottawa Citizen, even the MPP for the area told concerned residents the project was too advanced to stop. Indeed, it would have been completed in a few months' time, had already provided over 230 construction jobs, and would have added $45 million to the local economy over the coming 30 years. And now our Environment Minister Jeff Urick has cancelled the program over a sudden concern for brown bats. As Egan writes, quote, since signing a contract in 2016, the company has done a number of studies related to the uh, effects of the wind farm, including the noise models, wildlife analysis, geological work, and following regulated setbacks of 550 meters from the nearest house. And then they said had their experts provided evidence that the project would have no material adverse effects on the natural environment, including the bat population. Uh, And we will also point out that Sarah Buchanan, writing for Environmental Defense, highlighted Ontario's Auditor General's response to Doug Ford's so-called climate plan, which has proven to be full of bold and blatant lies. 
She writes, quote, the plan's estimate for emissions reductions from low carbon vehicles uptake includes reductions from canceled programs that supported electric vehicle adoption. Same goes for renewable energy. Remember the $231 million they spent to cancel green energy contracts? Well, it turns out they counted the emissions reductions from every one of these canceled contracts in their climate change plan. Buchanan also notes that the federal government will now be considering whether to allow Ontario's industrial pollution to go forward like they just did for Alberta, uh, industrial pollution plan to go forward, or whether to reject it and impose their own, writing that our current industrial pricing plan will reduce emissions by only one megaton by 2030, while the federal plan will result in a three megaton reduction. Yes, well, you're the, you're the author of this. I mean, it's very rare we actually have the person who actually wrote the article that we're referencing, so I'm going to defer to you on that. <laughs> Well, I just got to say, I mean, the session just ended, the legislative session ended yesterday, and they were really packed it in for us in terms of climate stuff. Like, Mm. um, the other thing that you didn't mention is that a couple of weeks ago, the energy minister cited a climate change denial blog in Mm. the in in question period, and then everyone dunked on him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was this horrible video of this press conference where he like apologized for 10 seconds and all the reporters kind of bullied him as he walked away. (laughs) I don't know if you saw that. Um, But yeah, like the, you've covered it very well, I think. Um, We're getting some interesting messages from this government about its climate priorities. Uh, With with the wind farms, um, one like weird thing about that is that they actually said they were canceling on on environmental grounds, which is kind of genius if you think about it. <laughs> canceling an environment thing because of the environment. Right. Um, and, I mean, I read through the Environmental Review Tribunal's decision on that wind farm south of Ottawa. There was no danger to wildlife. Right. They, well, there's no climate change and – and, and, it's like once you once you start denying some facts, there's it's you just didn't, can deny anything. You need to do whatever you like. Like you know, it's like oh yeah, this will hurt beavers. Why? Well, there's the flying beaver that might fly through them, and that's going to be a huge issue for you. <laughs> you know, I feel like there's this level of this like sort of the, it's a it's an immediate slippery slope down to like we can say whatever we like. So like let's cancel these because of because of this uh, you know because of a made up environmental problem. <laughs> like, right, right. And one line that we've been hearing a lot is just well, we don't need this electricity. Which mm. is not mm. the point, I yeah. think. Yeah, not the yeah, well. It's, it's it's like it's it's like three layers down. Like it's you can like you get trapped in that argument and avoid the other ones. You know, like but should we waste two hundred million dollars that we already spent? Is the first question. You know, like it's like not need electricity is like four layers down of an argument that you if they can trap you there, you won't get to the argument of like you just wasted two hundred million dollars. That's true. That's very true. I think. It's been a year since Ontario released its its Made in Ontario climate plan, air quotes. Um, and I think we don't have any new information since then. Like, I think since that plan was announced and released, we have very little information about the nitty-gritty details of, of what they're doing, how they're implementing it, um, and so forth. I was interested to see that the Environment Minister of Ontario was at COP25. Mm. This week, um, <laughs> meeting with the federal environment minister and other sort of European leaders uh, on this topic. And that will be interesting to sort of get some more information about what the conversations were, were about, what perked his interests, etc. Um, I was interested to see that happen 
as they canceled a wind farm. Um, but but it, it, unfortunately, there are a lot of dichotomies in Ontario when it comes to environmental and energy policy and where we're heading. Um, as Emma said, do we need the 1,000 megawatts that Nation Rise Wind Farm was going to provide? 100. 100 megawatts. <laughs> I apologize. 100 megawatts that the Nation Wind Rise was going to provide. I cannot answer this question uh, with sound knowledge, but would love to hear from few like listeners who might know more. Um, but the point is that if we're not investing in wind energy, what are we investing in? Like, in, if the future is moving away from oil and carbon and sort of dirty energy fuels, um, what in Ontario are we doing about that? Yeah, and, and I will say that there's a, I think there's a pretty significant misconception about. Like one of the more interesting arguments about how we should set up our energy grid um, is, is, is as we move towards a zero carbon um, future is the idea that instead of focusing so heavily on batteries, which have a significant you know different downsides and more costs, that you should just over have energy, like just make twice as many wind powers, <laughs> like like in fact, it's like have an abundance of energy all the time and have that be the way you do it, rather than trying to actually maintain a certain like base load using battery power, and and so there's an argument of like, do we need it? Like, if any anything that would reduce our our still existent need on uh, on on natural gas is better, right? There's a level of like. I, I sort of run out of that, run of that a little bit, and I, there was I, I, I was trying to figure, find out the exact name of this commission, but the Ontario government just recently brought together or created a list of uh, of groups uh, or names of people who are part of an advisory panel to to help them come up with a improve their climate plan. There's like they're starting to talk about that and think about that, and. I and I was sort of skimming the people and like they all and I don't know none of the names jumped out at me. There wasn't sort of name that the name that I was sort of like like it didn't seem like they were going too far one way or too far the other way. It seemed like a bunch of honestly sort of career people working in conservation largely. Uh, but the one thing that did that I, I, I'm mostly I'm mostly bringing this up because I like the name of the organization so much, but also I think it's kind of like I it does make me but it does also color the type of feedback you'll get, which is that the vice president uh, the, the the sorry the the, the second in command the Vice uh, person in this in this thing is a manager at Ducks Unlimited, uh, which is just my favorite name for a group. I love the name Ducks Unlimited. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's just every time it comes, I, I've come across it like once a year, and every time I'm like, oh right, Ducks Unlimited is a group that exists. I just imagine myself like lying down while like baby ducks crawl all over me, and I'm <laughs> yeah. like, this is this is the future yeah. that the left wants. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ducks Unlimited. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so like, I, I, but clearly they're leaning into this conservation, right? Like, that, I think that's a, a, a very conservative um, tactic is is to sort of focus heavily on conservation as the conversation we quote unquote need to be having rather than than real change. Yeah. I, I mean, I see both sides of the argument, right? On the one hand, Ontario's electricity is pretty clean; like, we are dependent on hydro energy. We're also the province with, I, like the country's largest solar market like mm. we we do have you know clean energy uh fuels that are supplying our electricity but on the other hand uh as we look to the future and 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 we see what's happening um do we go the extra mile and i think we're not getting enough conversation about the government i'm like you know if they wanted to cancel this nation rise wind project or the white pines wind project uh, it's in their prerogative to do so. They are the ruling um, government. 
But it would be nice to have a little clarity on why exactly they're doing it and what they're doing instead of it and why we are sort of losing so much money that we invested in this one project or in these two projects that were half built, nearly completed um, for apparently nothing. I think that's the jarring part of the argument. It's why exactly did you cancel it? Sure, you canceled it, but and what are you going to do instead of it? Like, talk to us. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I do. I do feel like that's the that, that's the thing here, right? Is that it doesn't it, it only makes sense if your goal was to just dunk on liberals who liked wind farms. Like, it's it's super not fiscally conservative, and so it really only makes sense as if you just want to be like, look, I did a thing you won't like. Uh, but we are we are we have not gone uh, well over time in our first break. Uh, so let's go let's go to our, our music break. We're back with Lauren Latour uh, to talk about other things. What have you seen in your short long life? What has your heart overcome? The traditional ways that are hidden away can be revived by the beat of a drum. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. Welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter, Saren Kaster, Emma McIntosh, Fatima Syed, and I believe we now have Lauren Latour. Is that correct? Yeah, rounding out a pretty full house from the sound of it. Fantastic. Uh, and now we're going to get into uh, Christian Parenti on funding the Green New Deal in America. So Christian Parenti wrote a piece for Jacobin back in mid-March in which he argues that at least in the American context, uh, the Green New Deal does not need to be funded by the public, mostly or entirely. The government just needs to deploy the right tactics to trigger private investment and redirect existing public funds. He writes, quote, the Green New Deal does not mean buying a bunch of new green stuff to bolt onto all the old, old dirty stuff. Rather, it means changing how society invests. Even if one ultimately wants to nationalize the means of production, green industrial planning within a capitalist framework is an important step towards deeper changes in our mode of production as a whole. He then points to the some $4.8 trillion in cash sitting idle in the coffers of all non-financial American corporations, as well as the total uh, $22.1 trillion of assets held by those same corporations, which is currently being invested primarily in the financial sector, where it reaps profits off precarious speculations that destabilize the system and do little to benefit the actual economy. Parenti argues that this money is being held in wait for the next big profit driver, like electrification or the internet, and that the Green New Deal's vision of a civilization-wide clean energy transition would unleash the hoarded corporate cash and be the basis of a new long wave of investment. He goes on to list various tools the American government will need to trigger this switch. He argues first for killing all fossil fuel subsidies, which cost them $26 billion a year, and ending all extraction on public lands. He then argues for putting the fossil fuel sector on an aggressive legal timeline towards extinction, requiring utilities to produce more clean power, which would shift investment away from new pipelines, having the government retrofit all of its half a million buildings, replace all government vehicles with electric ones, and set out a schedule to buy all the energy it consumes from clean sources. 
Such change in government procurement would see private companies coming in to fill that,、uh, that need and build out their capacity. Parenti concludes, quote, "Far from costing too much, the Green New Deal promises the very thing that Wall Street hoarding denies: more opportunity and more income for more people. After all, capital is like blood; it is only useful if it circulates." <laughs> Yeah, you got you to like a good line. That's a good line.、Um, uh, to you, to you first, Lauren.、Uh, thanks.、Um, yeah, this piece、um, was an interesting one.、Uh, the the author definitely makes a very sort of compelling and informed case, and and it, and it is sort of a, a good reminder that that we do have to be sort of realistic with the way that these transitions will actually roll out and the involvement of of the private sector.、Um, but ultimately,、uh, I was sort of there was a lot of Pause here because、uh, a Green New Deal, as we know, is driven by sort of like the deep left, and the deep left is very distrustful of any sort of big business <laughs> involvement,、um, given obviously its exploitation of workers and and the planet.、Um, at, at one point, the writer mentions that like oh like Duke Energy will continue and should continue to operate simply sort of pivoting to clean energy, and and I think sort of my question comes up around sort of like well like well should it get to operate? With the amount of damage that it's inflicted in the past, isn't sort of the whole point of a Green New Deal? Like, yes, it's rapid, large-scale decarbonization, but like in a way that benefits the most marginalized people, in a way that like respects workers and indigenous lands rights holders. And I sort of worry that with that with this writer's vision of a Green New Deal, sort of driven by private investment and led by shareholders, that that we're still sort of perpetuating a concentration of power at the top. Um, in in my mind, if we want to free up that 4.8 trillion dollars in, in hibernating cash, as he so calls it, it, it sounds like what we need is to like tax the daylights out of those companies.、Um, yeah, because it, at a certain point, he sort of like goes on to like cite these these sort of waves of, of investment that have happened over the last several hundred years, and he's like he cites the internal combustion engine, and it's like yes, the internal combustion engine gave us the car and transformed our cities, but like with those private companies and a few wealthy people. In the like metaphorical driver's seat at the helm, it led to to a lack of consciousness and 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 widespread destruction.、Um, the same thing happened with the personal computing boom. That that again, if anybody's read the read the piece that's listening, will remember he cites the per,、uh, the personal computing boom. And yes, it transformed every aspect of society. But like many of those once idealistic tech dreamers who like set out to do good, thinking specifically of like Google and its do no evil sort of mantra here.、Um, Once they were left to sort of run amok and do whatever they wanted to, like ultimately have led us down like a really dark path. And 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 obviously this isn't to say that like governments don't inflict damage and all companies are terrible. But but if like I don't know, I I will always put my faith in an elected leader because we can hold them to account better than any sort of capitalist ever will. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and it, it was it was it, yeah. It's interesting. I think that's one of the major one of the major ways I think people have. To have tried to use the concept of like voting with your dollar has been as the idea of like that's how we hold people to account, and like you've seen, and it's 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 interesting that that you can see that work in small scales, but then clearly stops working when you get to larger scales. Like it's、mm-hmm. you know like like yes, you can vote with your dollar and probably get you know. Uh, you know your local your local mom and pop store run out of business. Like you probably could run an effective campaign to ruin a small business、um, by voting with your dollar. But like then you look at Facebook and you're like, what do you? It's it's the it, 
there's how many people would have to leave Facebook for it to stop being a functional thing? And not only mm-hmm. Facebook at this point. It's like it's like oh, everyone's moving off Facebook, then they buy Instagram. It's like oh, okay, now everyone's Instagram. Everyone leaves Instagram, they go to WhatsApp. Now they own WhatsApp, and now they're telling you you own WhatsApp, which is really annoying to me actually. Um, but that's entirely but and, and and then you know and then to the point where like this is WhatsApp was you know a. A publicly traded company, or sorry, was a was a was a company that was entirely based around security. And the guy who's running it, I think, quit like a month, like six months before he all his options vested. So he like lost billions of dollars just because he couldn't be a part of this anymore. And like that should be a flag. Um, but to, to to get back to to get back to sort of your point about uh, about this about how this capital flows, there is a level of which. I, I feel like we keep trying to find other ways to do this without just taxing people. Like there's a level of this this feels like and, and a lot of these things, a lot of the a lot of the new ideas, not just about a lot of new ideas, is like, okay, we're probably not gonna get away with taxing people. So how else might we find a way to make this sound like a thing we could do? And 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 this does sort of seem to be all in that sort of like like, you know, it's uh, we need to do this as quickly as possible, and we're not seeing this one way. So, what else can we do? Uh, response. But he's also talking about initial stages. He's right. saying end subsidies, make the government procure these things, and that will begin to move private investment. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, to, uh, to, I can make one point on fossil fuel subsidies, and then I'll go to then I'll go to our, our panel in studio, which is that the one thing I think people don't fully understand. Uh, about fossil fuel subsidies is that a ma- a vast percentage of them right now in Canada is just making it cheaper for you to fly. Mm-hmm. Like it, like the thing about removing all fossil fuel subsidies in Canada is that it will be directly felt by consumers who want to fly a lot uh, or fly at all, really. Um, and so that uh, th- like that is the primary way people would feel it, and it does not directly track. I think with the actual. Um, with, with what people imagine it to be, like people imagine ending fossil fuels to be something else, and it also just although that does speak directly to the problems of flight generally. Uh, but but I'll go into the panel and then back to Lauren. Well, I think one of the biggest news that happened this week was Mark Carney was appointed the uh, advisor. The, I'm forgetting the exact title. I do apologize, but the advisor for the UN Environment Climate Initiative, and I think that signals a huge shift in thinking in that it's not just about advocates and sort of environmentalists anymore, it's about finance, that climate change is inherently a business issue as well, and it should be thought of as a big issue. And, you know, we've always um, heard, you know, the, the drumbeat of big oil needs to change its ways. Now there are active sort of discussions from, from people in, in the financial world saying, we're going to change investment patterns if you don't get your act together and disclose your carbon footprint or your sustainability measures, or if you don't change um, XYZ pertaining to environmental is- initiatives. Um, and I think that 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 didn't happen before. I, I like even a year ago, I, I couldn't pinpoint the financial world turning its tides in towards climate change in, in that manner. Um, you know, we saw the EU Green Deal, Green New Deal, come out this week, and again, part of that is the idea of green financing and greenwashing. Um, so there is a huge shift happening in in the perspective, and and the financial world and climate change are colliding in a huge way, and it will be interesting to see how industries respond to this. Well, yeah, well, even just Moody's downgrading Alberta 
as yeah. you, know, er, you know credit rating, you know, because they're too tied to fossil fuels. But not just that, there are two big sort of you know investment funds in in Norway and um, another country that I cannot recall at the moment that sort of removed their investments from Alberta because they said that it's just not sustainable from a climate change perspective. Uh, and we're seeing those investment patterns change towards more sustainable countries and countries who are, are likely to have their sort of, you know, environmental act together in, in the next couple of years. Um, and I think the boardroom is now actively talking about climate change more than they've ever talked about climate change. Yeah. It, it's, I think it was Sweden that actually stopped buying Albertan bonds. That's it. That's which is, it. Which, it was which Sweden. Is, which is yeah. the whole thing. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's but, Friday. Yeah, no, I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> On like a, an even smaller level, like you're, you're seeing kind of this turn towards exactly what you're saying, recognizing that climate is actually something that affects your balance sheet. And there's no better way to get billionaires moving than by threatening to take away some of that cold, hard cash. <laughs> and so like uh, a couple months ago, we saw that a whole bunch of the chartered professional accountants in Canada put out a, a, a thing saying, hey, this is a big problem and we need to all be accounting for this <laughs> accounting um, <laughs> I'm sorry uh, and we've seen that with other industries as well and I think um, I mean you heard me ranting about this the other day Fatima <laughs> I always do but um, if everyone was accounting for the climate liabilities that they're gonna have to pay at some point a lot of companies wouldn't actually be viable and so um, yeah like we do need this larger systemic change. Yeah, totally. But money, money will help us, I guess. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, so we're actually only doing uh, so one music break, Lawrence. And as a heads up, so uh, I'm going to throw it back to you, and then uh, we'll move on to the next topic. If you want to stay on the line, please do. But uh, no worries if you cannot. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, just sort of coming back to, to this piece right before we we sign off. Um, it does just sort of freak me out that that already uh, within the left, as it pertains to Green New Deal, we're talking about how how billionaires and and large businesses can contribute to this. Because I mean, it's like in what way have they ever earned our trust before? Um, and and the fact that like we're already sort of already saying like, oh hey, you can keep your billions just as long as you manage them properly is 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 something that that immediately sort of catches me off guard and freaks me out. So so the fact that this is a discourse that's leading within the left, or maybe not leading, but but is prevalent, um, yeah, kind of kind of knocks me off my feet a little bit. So yeah, curious to see how this aspect of the conversation continues. Mm-hmm. Well. Uh- isn't it a beautiful sight to see, you know, billionaires, environmentalists, kids, teachers, pension fund managers just line up behind one cause and that cause is climate change? <laughs> I think that's really cool. It would be cool if the billionaires were actually <laughs> yeah. on board. Yeah, well, yeah. There's a, there's and if they didn't exist, <laughs> <laughs> there is that level. There's a, there's that great uh, chart or thing about like uh, showing cl- uh, how much emissions everyone is. It's like it's it, the very top is like rich people, and the second r- right below it is like rich people who care about the environment, and then all the way down further down is like everybody else. It's sort of like there's like a level of like you know as much as Tom Stair might say the word climate change, I'm not. You know, he's still flying around seventeen five <coughs> jets, so you know. But uh, but yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I just I didn't want to let something pass by because uh, something else because I think it's really important, which is just ar- around the idea. Uh, we mentioned that you know there was some I, I don't think surprise was maybe too strong a word, but there was some at least a single raised eyebrow from our from our panel here uh, around the idea a few minutes ago around the idea of Trudeau like sort of winning some fights around the climate policy and about some of these conser- more conservative leaning um, you know uh, 
provinces like falling into line around that. And, and I think that that was just worth an, a one more underline um, on this conversation because it's amazing. I think it's worth thinking about for a minute. It's amazing what happens when you stand your ground. <laughs> I wouldn't even say he fought. I would say he just planted his feet and decided that, he, the, you know, for whatever political reason or whatever, we can be cynical or not cynical about his motivations. But the, the reality is the fact remains that he planted his feet and he won. And all the people that were screaming bloody murder about taking him to court and this is an atrocity and all that terrible, you know, extreme language, it all meant... Zippo, nothing, done deal. So here's the thing I want us to remember. Imagine if he fought. Uh, and let me sneak one more thing in. As far as like transitioning and planting things, say we banned plastic. That's an, an industry that propped up that industry. No, but we banned new plastic. Now we have a new mega industry where all of a sudden all the plastic pollution in our oceans is now one of the most valuable resources in the world. Not only can we make changes that we don't think we can change if we just freaking try like a little, <laughs> But this has cascading effects that lead to the world we want to lead to. It's not like we change one thing and then the rest of the world stays static. Everything flips into motion. It's like when you turn your arm, part of your body turns. That's what we got to do. And we, we have to be realistic about the fact that it's doable if someone actually tries. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of um, transformation and uh, the role of corporations and billionaires, I will get through this uh, last segment on corporate polluters now. Uh, George Monbiot wrote a piece for The Guardian back in October in which he presents what he argues are the most insidious lies told by fossil fuel corporations. These are A, they've accepted the science of greenhouse gases since the 60s while spending billions of dollars over the same period to sow doubt about it and prevent government action, all of which continues to this day. B, they continue to present an image of switching to renewable energy while investing ever more in fossil fuels. And C, they've convinced us that it's all a matter of consumer choice, that it is all driven by demand, and therefore they're not responsible for our decision to use their product. Monbiot argues that this focus on regular people, primarily as consumers, is the most successful of these lies. This consumerism as an ideology, in Monbiot's argument, is not the tendency to seek fulfillment in consumption, but the belief that our primary role in the larger society is as a consumer, and su such that our entire realm of political decision-making as ordinary people is restricted to the sphere of individual choices, as if we're merely the, quote, recipients of goods and services rather than the creators of political reality. Since we don't usually think of ourselves as the creators of political reality, we don't understand the power we actually hold. It reminds me of Walter Benjamin's contention that the present should be thought of as a place where time has come to a stop, a place in which we ourselves are writing history. Benjamin defines history as a constellation of revolutionary events, as opposed to the pacifying idea of a steady and inevitable progress. Thus, any moment could be the moment of profound transformation, but consumerism shields this from us. As Monbiot writes, quote, the ideology of consumerism is highly effective at shifting blame. Witness the current ranting in the billionaire press about the alleged hypocrisy of environmental activists. Everywhere I see rich Westerners blaming <clears throat> planetary destruction on the birth rates of much poorer people or on the Chinese. This individu individuation of responsibility intrinsic to consumerism blinds us to the real drivers of destruction. End quote. Plutocrats and corporations are thus able to continue determining political reality in their favor. If we constantly ask each other, what are you doing personally, rather than what can we do together, we are limiting ourselves to our given roles as mere consumers in Monbiot's view. <clears throat> he writes, quote, the climate impacts of most of the world's people are minimal. Even middle class, rich people, uh, middle class people in the rich world whose effects are significant are guided by a system of thought and action that is shaped in large part by corporations. 
One example is the recent uh, revelation that the Institute of Economic Affairs, a registered educational charity and one of the most influential think tanks in the UK politically, has spent decades collecting money from fossil fuel companies and campaigning against climate action. In a similar line of thought for the same publication, Rebecca Solnit published an article in October in which she argued that Silicon Valley's thirst for ever greater power is fueling the climate crisis. First, she reminds us how YouTube's algorithms helped radicalize people in favor of Jair Bolsonaro and how Facebook and Cambridge Analytica helped elect Donald Trump. We also learned recently that Google donates heavily to several climate-denying policy groups because they agree with some of their other goals. Solnit writes, quote, the ethos, what of what be, the ethos behind what big tech offers is usually a libertarian idea of isolation and individualism sweetened with convenience. She points out that all the new ride-sharing apps have added 5.7 billion miles of driving annually in the 10 biggest American cities, writing, quote, what the, biggest, what the climate emergency demands of us and what capitalism does to us are at war with each other. Three years ago, comedian Matt Ruby wrote a blog post about how these, uh, these low-paying side hustle jobs created by Silicon Valley. He wrote, quote, unfettered capitalism doesn't give you back time or freedom or relaxation. It drills every orifice you have until a few more pennies drop out so the Q4 numbers look good for shareholders. Yet these tech companies position themselves as heroes. They talk about changing the world constantly. Yet all they do is turn out technology for rich white dudes in their 20s and 30s who live in big cities and what apps to fill in the blanks for what mommy used to do. And they even call it mom tech. We're letting our lives be dictated by programmers who want to breastfeed forever. Both Monbiot and Solnit reached the conclusion, much like the fierce protesters who took over COP this week in Spain, that it is ordinary people who must lead the climate movement into a position to prevent the worst effects of climate change, with Monbiot arguing for mass dilemma actions a la XR, writing, quote, a dilemma action is one that puts the authorities in an awkward position. Either the police allow civil disobedience to continue, thereby encouraging more people to join, or they attack the protesters, creating a powerful symbolism of fearless sacrifice, thereby encouraging more people to join. If you get it right, the authorities can't win. Solnit concluded, quote, human beings are at their best when they live and act as citizens. This depends on us being able to experience ourselves and each other as members of the public. Though many have used technology to further democracy and participation, big tech doesn't want us to be citizens, it wants us to be consumers. To address the climate crisis, we need to be citizens, free, powerful, with our private lives private and our public lives vivid, energized, and safe. She uses the word citizens with no reference to official status, but rather to point out, as Monbiat does, that we are not merely isolated individuals whose role is to choose between different varieties of destruction. We're also public actors whose right it is to determine the shape of politics and society. All right, so uh, that's a, would be a lot to respond to in the two minutes for the show left in the show. Um, so instead, uh, I'll just go to, to the two of you, because uh, I think we no longer have Lauren. Lauren, you're not there anymore, right? Um, I am. Oh, amazing. All right, Lauren, I'll go to you for one thought, and then we'll go through the two panels. So each of you get about 30-ish seconds. Any thoughts on the show or that topic? Yeah, just really briefly, I think I think those pieces by George Monbiot and, and Rebecca Solnit drive home exactly the reason why we cannot have big business involved in the Green New Deal to the capacity that the Jacobin piece laid out. Um, they are the drivers of this catastrophe, and to think that they will ever have any higher purpose or value other than developing and bolstering funds for their shareholders is is naive that's that's my only thought fair enough um uh shots on the show uh generally any last thoughts you want to throw in that you missed uh or any other thoughts to emma i guess if i were to end on a hopeful note i would say that um 
at least people now seem to understand that they have to at least look like they're trying. <laughs> There's a lot of at least in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to say it's been a big week for, for climate-related news. Greta was on The Time. Uh, she's the Times Person of the Year. Uh, very well-deserved, uh, as, as many will say. But, you know, she'll be the first one to say that I'm not doing enough and that I can't do enough because I don't have the power to do enough. And I think that's the big takeaway. You know, we have Mark Carney in the UN position. We have, you know, financial backs banks and, and sort of backers and, and big businesses changing their tune. We have, uh, you know, the federal government putting clean tech in, all, in a lot of their mandate letters. Um, there is momentum and shift happening. And I think we just got to keep beating the drum and asking tough questions and then holding them to account. Yeah. It's a that, group effort. It's, it's, it's going to take all of us. That's for sure. Uh, all right. Thank you so much. Uh, we will. Uh, that's the end of the show because you are now out of time. Uh, so have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for all of our guests in this packed house today. Uh, and have a great week. Everyone will see you all uh, next week. <laughs>